0: You're listening to The Samuel Andreev Podcast. In 1972, a group of composers traveled to Bali in order to experience the extraordinary musical culture at first hand. Among them were Toru Takamitsu, Yanis Zanakis, and Betsy Jolas. I've often wondered about the circumstances surrounding this trip and why it had such a big impact on the artists who made the journey to Indonesia. So today, Nearly 50 years later, I'm sitting here with Betsy Jolas in her home in Paris. Betsy, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. <laughs> I want to start just with a, a brief biography for any listeners who may not be acquainted with your work. Betsy Jolas was born in Paris in 1926 to American parents. Her mother, Maria MacDonald, was a translator, and her father, Eugène Jolas, was a writer, translator, and critic. Together, they published the periodical Transition in Paris, which led, among other things, to a close association with writers such as Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, and James Joyce. Through her parents, she encountered these and many other major modernist figures. During the war, her father decided to move the family from France to America. From 1940 to 1948, she lived in New York City and studied music at Bennington College. Subsequently, she returned to Paris, eventually studying composition at the Conservatoire de Paris under Darius Mio, and auditing the classes of Olivier Messiaen. In 1978, she was named Professor of Composition at the Conservatoire de Paris, succeeding Olivier Messiaen. Since then, she has created a vast body of work in every conceivable genre, ranging from orchestral music to grand opera, electronic music to choral works. It's hard to summarize your life and work in a few sentences. Have I got that mostly right? or were there...
1: <laughs> Mostly right, yes. I, I just want to add about the conservatory, because it was so important for me. I taught analysis for, for many years before I started teaching composition, and I always preferred to teach analysis than composition. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? Well, because uh, I, I didn't feel I, at that time that I had much to, to offer as a teacher. And sometimes I thought my students really didn't know, had no idea why they wanted to write any music at all. Or they had uh, very wrong ideas. Sometimes they would bring me uh, all these incredible drawings which uh, represent the finished piece, which of course I've never worked like that. And I used to say to them, and, and, and now that would, what, what shall we do? Yeah. And they didn't really know. So that's, that's one part of my teaching. Actually, the composition part went over to America also. I taught composition in America. But I also taught analysis, which was quite new to them in many places. I taught it just the way I did in Paris. And most of the time they were surprised, but they liked it. I remember that.
0: When I was studying composition in Canada, studying analysis per se, wasn't exactly something that you did, at least not certainly in the way that it's done in France. So I discovered that when I moved here in 2003, that there's a very different approach to uh, to looking at um, at, uh, at music in, in France than is the case in North America.
1: Well, this is probably a very personal view. I, I've always uh, found solutions in other people's music to the problems that I, that I was uh, asking myself to, to solve, It requires clear listening. I was very struck by the fact that that very many composers that I had as a student were just not curious. And they didn't think they had anything to learn from uh, Handel or Mozart or Bach or people like that. I mean, that that was old stuff. That that wasn't going to teach them. They they wanted and They they wanted uh, Ensemble Intercontemporain, and and that's it. So um, I had great trouble uh, convincing them that they could learn something. Even from Verdi, I remember when I announced that we were going to study Falstaff, they thought I was crazy. Yeah, but I did it. <laughs> I've always enjoyed teaching in analysis for, for a very selfish reason, because I was free to, to choose the pieces that I taught. And I always taught what I was trying to find out myself. And I found myself that I was a better teacher when I was asking myself the problems. Come to think of it, I wonder if it wasn't in, in a different way, of course, the, the case with Monsieur also he was such an incredible teacher, but he was always asking himself questions and he was finding uh, answers it, it, I mean he was he was a very learned uh, teacher and and he was finding answers in the musicians that he loved that of course, asking yourself why you love it you have to admit that there's nothing wrong with, with admitting it
0: mm. no. Well, speaking of teaching analysis, one of the reasons that we're having this conversation is that I taught a course on the string quartet after 1968 recently in Freiburg in Germany, where I, I teach uh, courses in analysis. And one of the pieces that we looked at very closely with my students was your piece, Topeng, a very recent string quartet, which you wrote for the Arditi Quartet. And this got me on this whole topic of what the background to that piece was. And what exactly it was that happened in Indonesia almost 50 years ago now that made such a strong impression on you that it resulted in the creation of several pieces, including this one. So I want to center our conversation on that. I'm very, very curious about the circumstances behind this trip. Why was it that a group of mostly French musicians went on a collective journey to Bali together in 1972? How did that happen? Who put it together?
1: Henri-Louis de Lagrange, famous author of uh, the great book on Marla, and Maurice Fleuret, they had the habit of organizing uh, surprise trips for each one's birthday. And uh, one of those trips uh, took them to Bali, and they couldn't forget that. And so they decided they wanted to share this impression with with their friends. And so Henri-Louis de Lagrange uh, really organized the whole trip as a tour operator. We were expected uh, by Balinese musicians, and uh, the whole village was decorated in our honor. It was a great experience from that standpoint. And I've shown you some of the pictures of the people waiting for us, uh, and us walking towards the village, yes. It was very well organized. We also went to Java after Bali. And Java seemed at first a little more tame than Bali. Bali had uh, something delirious about it, uh, about the way the music suddenly broke out in very fast uh, tempo, having started uh, very calmly, just feeling the mode. I had not prepared anything in musicology about this trip, Uh, although I was urged to do so. I didn't read the books that I was recommended because uh, I wasn't interested. And I remember I was so impressed w- with everything I heard that when I came back, I couldn't, uh, of course this is not tempered music. Uh, and so when I came back, uh, listening to tempered music it was, it was painful. I tried to avoid it for a while. It was a very strange impression. And of course, being with, with Xenakis and Takemitsu and, and, and various other friends, it was very exciting. I mean, Xenakis, I can see him walking through the fields with his microphone open. I mean, just recording everything with, with no, uh, no announcements of any sort. He just recorded everything. And uh, we recorded a bit, but not very much because uh, Boris Fauré was recording also. And, and there were many photos were taken also. Besides the things that were planned, which was wonderful, something was always going on besides. Mm. So that's how we came upon Topping, which is a kind of theater, Balinese theater, that uh, employs just one actor who plays several characters. And every time he changes the mask, it gives rise to a, a tremendous agitation And the the gamelan, it's a full gamelan accompanying this one man. And gamelan gets excited also. And he he bursts out of a small cabin with with a curtain. Before he appears, the curtain starts moving and shaking. It's very exciting. But what you don't know is that this wasn't planned at all. We were walking along and it was practically dark because there was no electricity at the time in, in Bali. And so uh, we went by this banjar, which is a, a covered market. It's, it's a very good-looking building with a straw roof. And we realized that not only was this top end going on downstairs, but there was something going on as well upstairs. And we approached the staircase that, that led to, to the upstairs. We realized that there, there was a purification ceremony going on, very different Tempo, very slow and something happened which I cannot forget at one point the people taking part in the, in the purification started going downstairs and they went through the topeng music in other words the two musics crossed each other but not stopping.
0: A kind of Charles Ives moment.
1: <laughs> well, it, it was Strockhausen or, or Ives, yes, absolutely. I, I, I'll never forget that. I thought they were going to stop playing. No, they were chanting, and they kept on chanting as they went through the topping. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, so that, that's something I cannot forget. All of this, of course, created a very strong impression. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. The first thing I did at that time, I was assistant to to Menciel's class. I gave them a class on my experience in Bali. Brought some music, brought some photos, brought some uh, uh, some notes I had taken. I took a lot of notes because I was afraid I wouldn't make the best of this incredible experience. And uh, that was very interesting. But then I didn't realize that it was going to influence my music as well. And this happened very soon after. I was asked to write... A piano piece from Marie-Françoise Bouquet. I think I knew from the beginning that I was going to let this influence come through somewhere. It came through right from the beginning when I, I, I remembered the time when the Balinese gamelon player seems to feel his way. you know, he's just, he just fools around with, with the notes of the mode, and it's very slow and, and unstructured.
0: So they're improvising. Yeah.
1: Yes. It's not even improvising. It just plays around with the notes uh, that that he's going to use. Uh-huh. Uh, but but it it doesn't make a piece.
0: Mm-hmm. He's sort of testing out his instrument and That's getting right. warmed up. That's yeah. right.
1: And then suddenly it bursts out. It's like putting on the accelerator on your car, I mean, but at full speed, immediately. And that is so impressive. And, and so I, I, I remember that. And there was one point after feeling my, my mode at the beginning... I remember saying to myself, how about speeding up? And I'd, I'd, I had never written anything like that. I wrote two pages of very fast music. Uh, writing fast music is very difficult. And I had always dreamt of writing fast music. I said, I'll be a composer when I, when I can write fast music. And so this happened. <laughs> I, can, I, my...
0: I can confirm that that's extremely difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, it's hard to say why exactly. Uh, I've noticed that in contemporary music there's a lot of music that's kind of not fast and not slow it's sort of medium do you know what I mean it's sort of absolutely yes it's very and not much of a sense of pulse very often you get something that's kind of a a medium tempo but it is very very hard to write fast music and it's not something you see terribly often you
1: know uh, I I was asked recently to to answer a questionnaire (laughs) and and uh, one of the questions was uh, what is your greatest wish to write fast music like the Scherzo or Queen Mab by Berlioz. (laughs) (laughs) Really, that's how I feel about other people's music, how they can help me. Mm -hmm. And and I've never succeeded in doing that, Mm. not yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so I I have a few more questions then about about Bali. So you mentioned that this trip was organized by Henri-Louis de Lagrange and also Maurice Fleuret. Yes. But I still can't quite grasp how this happened. I mean, they just decided... So, so Maurice Fleuret had heard some Balinese music and was passionate about it, and wanted to bring some French composers to hear it as well. Uh, who organized it? Was it the Ministry of Culture? Was it just a personal initiative on his part?
1: Well we paid uh, we paid our own trips and our friends' trips uh, we brought friends and the reservations were made by uh, by Louis. it had nothing to do with with the ministry as far as, I, as far as I know uh, uh, it, it was totally individual. It was, it was what uh, Maurice Fleuret called la, la famille.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we should say who Maurice Fleuret was, because when I moved to France in 2003, I quickly noticed that in practically every conservatoire, there's a salle Maurice Fleuret. And I had no idea who he was. <laughs> of course. I figured he must be someone terribly important, because there's so many auditoriums named after him. So who was he?
1: So he was. Uh, he had he had studied music a little bit. He became a very good lecturer on music for what what's called the jeunesse musicale. And then uh, he was a great organizer. And uh, little by little, he moved up and up and up. And he finally became ministre uh, de la culture, director of music. Director of music. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and so as as director of music, he had a, a lot of ideas. Uh, some of them were pretty crazy but, but some of them were very good
0: yeah. well as anyone who lives in France will know there's an annual festival called the Fête de la Musique which people often complain about because it goes on all night and it's very noisy but uh, Maurice Fleuret was at the origin of that Yes, and also the Musica Festival in Strasbourg
1: absolutely yes he, he had some very very good ideas and he made them work he, he knew how to make them work uh, that, that was amazing uh, the way, the way he did that.
0: Yeah. So did he and uh, De La Grange, did they accompany you on the trip?
1: Yes, of course. Yes, of course. And, and uh, I, I tell you, I mean, it was, it was so amazing. We had these appointments in various villages. And so we, we had rented a truck, uh, which was our truck, and so we we went to the villages, and the villages were all decorated beautifully, and we were greeted like like kings and queens. It was wonderful, and in fact, it was sometimes embarrassing the way they respected us. They gave us tables, they gave us pencils so we could write, and they they performed for us in the most beautiful way. I will say that that was very impressive.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what were your first impressions then as you as you landed in on the island of Bali you'd never been there before presumably first
1: impression was it was uh, I was amazed I had never heard anything like that I had never been in that part of the world and so this everything was new uh, including uh, our, our stop at Singapore, uh, which we didn't, we didn't expect uh, to stay as long as we stay. We must have stayed two days. And, and that, that was also a discovery. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, on the way back, uh, our plane didn't wait for us, so, so we had to wait again. And, and uh, the plane that we, <laughs> that we took finally took us through Russia. And so we were coming from Bali uh, in in mid-winter, which Bali was in mid-summer at that time. And so we we were dressed as in summer, and we arrived in Moscow, which was uh, uh, minus 40 or something like that. (laughs) People couldn't understand where we came from. (laughs)
0: Uh. Hi, everyone. This is a short message from your host, I'm proud to share what I hope you will agree are high-quality conversations with performers and composers doing compelling work for free. I'd like to keep it that way for a long time to come. But this show does take time and resources to produce, and you can help by becoming a patron of the Samuel Andreev Podcast and my YouTube channel. It's incredibly easy and simple. For as little as $5 a month, you can help keep the show going in exchange for exclusive downloads, books, CDs, even personalized conversations and lessons. Please visit www.patreon.com slash for more information, or click the link in the podcast description. Or if you prefer to make a one-time donation, you can do that at www.samuelandreev.com donate. So who else was on the trip then? So we mentioned uh, Takamitsu and Zanakis? any other musicians you might want to mention yeah there
1: was my my fiance's bouquet was there uh, and and uh, my husband and and uh, takimitsu's wife and uh, yanis Xenakis's uh, wife also so that, that was a there was a little group and and uh, we all got along very well and uh, we we lived not in hotels for tourists it was we had we had houses which were built just like balinese houses and I remember going to the big, uh, what was the name of the hotel, I forget, uh, on the beach. There was a big Christmas tree, which <laughs> was just a, a bit ridiculous at that ah. time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I'm wondering what it was like to spend all that time with... Takemitsu and Zanakis. First of all, did you how well did you know them before you went on the trip? Had you had you spent any time with them prior to that?
1: I had spent much time with the, with the I, I, I've known him since 1951 or two, so, but but not with Takemitsu. Uh, and, and this was a, more or less a discovery. And we, we saw each other again after that. Uh, I went to Japan and I saw him again. Yeah, so th- this was very important. He joined us from Japan. He didn't come from, from Paris. This was a, quite a discovery. And, and uh, I was impressed after to see how how much uh, Yannick Senakis had been impressed himself by this music. When I heard the piece called Jean Chet, mm. uh, it it's totally evolved from, from this trip. It's amazing. amazing. That is an amazing
0: orchestra piece. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But okay. Very beautiful. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But as far as my quartet was concerned, <laughs> that's another story. When the commission came, I wasn't very enthusiastic. I was working on something else. And it was difficult, and, and the idea of, of going into something else and writing a, a brand-new piece uh, didn't appeal to me at first. But then the idea of writing, of course, for the R.D.T. Quartet, that made it, and I started. But I, started, I had no idea how it was going to turn out. It's strange because that's the way I work. I mean, the ideas come as I work. This is not orthodox, I suppose. I mean, that's why I don't teach composition. I couldn't teach that.
0: Well, I've often wondered what your secret is because your works often have a kind of secret coherence to them, but it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen next in one of your pieces. So I've often wondered, how is it that they hold together so well that there's such a sense of cohesion in these pieces when at the same time, you just don't know where it's going to go next. You're very kind.
1: I must say, when I finished this piece, I I didn't know what I thought of it. I I, I wasn't very proud. One of the first things I did when I started rehearsing with the RDT, I said, this is not uh, modern music. This is classical music. Uh, Normal vibrato, please. I didn't know really whether that was going to help it. I, I wasn't very enthusiastic about my piece. But I I listened to it again a few days ago and I I must say it does make a little sense (laughs) when when I hear it now. I remember one of the first ideas as often with me uh, is thinking of Erwin Arditti himself and the idea of making him start the piece and uh, giving him a special sound with the metal mute was uh, something I liked very much because I thought he wouldn't like that. (laughs) <laughs> and and he, did, he didn't comment on that at all. He was supposed to play very loudly with, a, with that kind of a mute, which is supposed to dampen the sound.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny that you asked them to play it like classical music, because the Arditti Quartet is not known for their interpretations of Beethoven and Brahms. They've developed a different sort of technique that suits the repertoire that they play, but it's not got much to do with classical phrasing and vibrato and that kind of approach to sound.
1: That's why I told them that. Mm. Uh, and they, they heard me. They they played it very well, especially considering all the other pieces that were on the program, very different. Uh, Clara Maeda, uh, Mason, very different sound. It's wonderful to be able to change your sound in the course of one concert. Mm. And and uh, so I started with, with this sort of call from uh, Irvin Narditi, and I thought that... That, that was sort of operatic a little bit. And then suddenly they all landed on a sea. Hmm, interesting. O-
0: octave seas.
1: Yeah, Yeah. octave seas. And I said, oh, that, I like that. Uh, I'm going to use this again.
0: Okay. <laughs> so this was, this was not planned. I mean, you didn't have no, a... No, You didn't know what you were going to do when you no, started.
1: No, no, So and,
0: it's really fascinating.
1: And, and the sea came back. Several times. Several
0: times, yeah. And, and,
1: and things get developed uh, practically in classical way. And, and uh, uh, sometimes I said to myself, oh, they're not going to like that oh, this, is a, this is too classical for them.
0: So, well, it starts. So, so
1: what, I said to say?
0: <laughs> but it starts in a very unclassical way because, as you say, it starts with a, a kind of obbligato first violin part yeah. uh, in which the others are accompanying. But it's a strange kind of obbligato because he's playing with a metal mute. So the sound is kind of constrained. Let's say
1: there was something dramatic about it because the sound was strange, and uh, the idea was that this strange guy is calling, and uh, we have to answer. <laughs> he was he was uh, he was authoritarian.
0: <laughs> well, not only that, in the first violin part there are all of these wild glissandi, and he's playing sultasto tasto and up on the G string and so on. So it has a very unusual sound. It sort of sounds like a kind of extra-European music, you know, or a kind of uh, folk music. Yes. And I wonder if that was intentional and if that had a connection with your trip to Bali. Uh,
1: not yet. It came later. At one point, I said, okay, uh, enough working out uh, with, with this, uh, this leading uh, first violin. Where are we going? Oh, Topeng! Suddenly, I remember that, oh, this is my solution. So it'll happen once, it'll happen twice, it'll happen third. It, it'll be like a rondo form, mm. <laughs> so-called. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love uh, open strings. Uh, I don't know why. I, I like the scratching sound. Uh, <laughs> so I, I decided that that, that was just what I needed to hold the piece together. Mm. And and uh, I guess it works.
0: Uh, yeah, I would say it works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: I, I had these... Uh, Sections which which now that I listen to to those with repeated eighth notes, I mean, which sound very much like classical music, and and, uh, it doesn't continue like that. But something happens.
0: Yeah. So, but again, none of this was planned out in advance, and I think this is what's so interesting about it: is that you'll end up in the piece in some kind of new idea, and you won't know how you got there, but it'll all make some kind of musical sense there's the the piece has a shape and a sense of dramaturgy and it's very satisfying the way it moves from one mask to another so to speak you know as we move through all of these different scenes
1: you know I, I I always remember what Honiger told me one day he says when I get stuck I change my chair I go sit over there and I'm I'm the man in the public or the woman and what do I want to hear now that's a question I ask myself. What do I want to hear now? Do I want to hear anything? Mm. Uh, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I want to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to be very lucid about what you're hearing that has already happened. And sometimes it's difficult because it's new. It's not been played before. But it's, uh, it's something I, I, uh, legitimate or not. I don't know whether it's legitimate, but it, sometimes it works.
0: Sometimes well, it, it sounds like the trajectory of the piece is is almost more important than the material itself that you start with. It's it's. it's well,
1: i I remember at one point uh, I was very grateful to the to the topping idea because I knew I had to go at least write 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, sometimes the, the duration is hard to to hold, especially as I get old. Uh, I get tired sometimes. Oh, I want to go. I want to go to something else now. Yeah. Yeah. But I was very surprised when I heard it because it seemed to me uh, that it worked. At least uh, the public reacted. I was very astonished. I, I'm always astonished. Concert ex- experience is, is always a surprise to me. Mm. I, I never know what I'm supposed to think. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure.
0: There's something about sitting in the audience as you hear a piece being played for the first time. No matter how well you know your own piece... And no matter how careful you were when you wrote it, there's still something new about that experience fundamentally, and you really discover the piece for the first time. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, because there's, a, there's, this, there's this, this human reaction behind you, or in front of you, which is something you, you, you couldn't predict. And that, that is so important. It does have an influence.
0: So how did Irvine Arditti react when you said that you wanted it to be played as classical music?
1: Uh, he was a bit surprised when he got the piece. He says, uh, okay, we've got it, but he didn't know what to say at first. Oh, we going to work on it, he says. Okay. He, he didn't comment on it until after, mm. uh, after the concert. Uh, and I, I wasn't worried. By the time I had rehearsed with them, I knew what I wanted and I knew it was going to be OK. But uh, I was interested in his uh, reaction. I think his reaction was probably conditioned by the reaction of the public. I'm, I'm not sure he would have had an idea of the piece alone. I don't, I don't want to say that, that he doesn't know how to read really a score. But it was sort of out of the usual circuit. And uh, the reaction came afterwards. And they've played it many times now, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, every time it has been well-received, as far as I know. Uh, So I'm beginning to think maybe it's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So this is one in a long series of of quartets that you've written, although not all of your quartets are for four-string instruments, we should point out. That's right.
1: Uh, I have eight quartets. I call them quartets because they use uh, four players, but only
0: four, I guess, are, are, are for strings. You're actually quite well represented on disc, but strangely, the quartets are not widely available. I've often wondered why that is, because there should be a, a double CD of all of your quartets together, but nobody's done it yet. Let's hope. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Let's hope it happens before I die. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hope any string quartets uh, who are listening to this will take note that there's uh, there's work to be done. Interestingly, so when I was doing the course on the string quartet in Freiburg this was a coincidence, but the two pieces that we looked at before yours were the Elliot Carter Fifth Quartet ah. and Ainsi la Nuit of Dutille. And it just so happened that, in in my view, all three pieces actually have quite a lot in common, which was quite interesting. One of the things is that they're all written in relatively short sections that have a, a, an interesting interplay between ver- sort of variation and the distortions of memory but you have these very short little sections that follow each other in a, an almost fantasia like way. Yes, right. So that's certainly also the case in the Carter and and Dutia pieces.
1: Yes, I don't know the Carter piece very well, but I, I know the Dutia piece. Uh, I remember when he wrote it, and and, and uh, I have great admiration for that piece. a Great piece. Yes.
0: Let's bring this back then to the trip, and because I want to understand this a little bit better. So, so you found yourself in Bali with Zanakis and Takumitsu. And what sort of person was Zanakis? What was he like when he was relaxed, on vacation? What was his personality like?
1: I, I'll tell you, he and my husband were always doing things that were forbidden. I mean, like like, like swimming uh, very far, because they were told, be careful, they are sharks. And they were always doing that. They, they were the bad boys, hmm. the, the two of them. And one day, uh, one one night actually, we got stuck with our truck and uh, there was no light, everything was dark. And we were told not to leave the truck because we might be uh, attacked uh, in the night. And before we knew it, Xenakis and my husband had gone and we didn't know where they had gone. They, They had actually gone to the next village where the peasants were w- working on their gamma, hmm. And nothing happened to them. <laughs> 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 that was one of the aspects of Yanis. I have a photograph of, of uh, Yanis uh, surrounded with his wife and Marie-Francoise. Uh, they, they're cutting his hair <laughs> 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 on the beach. <laughs> uh, it was very hot. I think it's normal normal climate uh, at the time. We did go swimming a, a little bit, Cautiously, because of sharks, we didn't really like sharks. Mm. Musically speaking, technically speaking, they have a divisi technique, which is very elaborate. And uh, they share four sixteenths between three people. And it's fast. And it's very fast. Mm -hmm. And it works. And it never overlaps. It works very well.
0: So but I think the, the 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 way music is practiced there is quite different from the way it would be in in Europe, certainly. So how how does it work? Do they consider themselves professionals? This is simply part of their indigenous culture. Is it uh, just a collective practice that everybody's involved in? H- how does it work? How does it fit into their society?
1: I think it fits absolutely normally in a society, uh, but th- they don't consider themselves as professionals. It's just part of their, their jobs uh, in the community. Hmm. And, and uh, as I said, you know, there were these peasants had been working in the fields in the day, and at night they were practicing their gamel. Yeah. And they practice. I guess everybody, because there's not only playing the, the instruments, but there's also dancing and theater. Mm. So everybody can have something to do in the community. Yeah. And, and, and the communities are not that large, That the, the people who have nothing to do. There's always something they can do,
0: but there's no difference between an amateur and a professional in that kind of culture. It doesn't; those concepts don't even make sense. I,
1: I, I think I can say that there isn't. Yes, mm. uh, that's what I, I understood. Yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when we went to Java, we saw a, a shadow theatre at one of those sultans, mm. and, and, and uh, apparently there were two. So when the first one heard, uh, the the second one heard that the first one was having us as guests, he decided he wanted to have us too. So we had two ceremonies in that city. I can't remember the name. He'll come back (laughs) tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, And uh, it was very impressive because the speaker, uh, the speaker in the, the shadow theater, and the speaker Uh, It was like a newspaper. He was talking about everyday life. Of course, we couldn't understand, but we were told. One one of the subjects they were dealing with was birth control. (laughs) We were told in in the shadow theater. It was very strange. Uh, Another thing we saw which was very interesting was a a, a ceremony, a, a trance. And that was impressive because we had heard that it was going on, and Moesvira said, we must go and see that. And so we went there very early in the morning. It it was finishing, and they they were all completely gone. And so we saw one of the priests, and the priests are dressed in white in in Bali. One of the priests take one of the participants and bring him back to life, Slowly, that was very, very impressive. Something I had never seen before. Hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. Hmm. So there's there's a whole theatrical dimension to this that that you. It's always the same story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so how does how does the topeng work then? So this is a a a masked dance. So there's a theatrical aspect. There's there's dancing. There's music. Uh, What sort of stories or narratives are being? worked out in this kind of performance?
1: I couldn't tell you. Uh, Topeng because of course it was in Melanese. I, cu- I couldn't understand. Uh, it didn't seem to be the usual play that we saw everywhere we, we, because we ended up understanding what was going on because it was always the same thing. Uh, but but uh, in that case, it, it seemed like very violent stories. The one actor got extremely excited and so did the, the Gabon. Uh, he got so excited when he was shaking the the curtain of his little house before he came out. he burst out like a cannonball, and and he shaked the curtain for a long time to to create the the the, the panic. And the the stories that he told were apparently all the, all that kind. I, I couldn't tell you what he was talking about. Hmm. I didn't know, hmm. but it was impressive. Hmm. Hmm. Even yeah. if you don't understand what the story yeah. is, nevertheless, yeah, I, there's I a... wish I could. Yeah. No, I would have had to. Uh, I know musicians who've spent much more time in Bali and, and are really uh, experts. Yeah. Jean Francois Bernard Marsh, for instance, uh, uh, spent uh, quite a lot of time. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a, there's a quote I'd actually like to read you from Takamitsu, who talked about this trip some years afterwards. And this is from a book called Confronting Silence which was published by Fallen Leaf Press in 1995. And it was actually, incidentally, it was Julian Anderson that sent me this quote when he knew that I would be talking to you about this. He said, oh, here's an interesting quote from Takumitsu. So Takumitsu says, A year ago, I traveled to Indonesia with a group of French musicians. During that visit, after hearing a Javanese gamelan, one of them started talking to me, very excited about the absolutely new resource in music. His excitement struck me as very strange because I knew that many decades earlier it was the French composer Debussy who, after hearing a Gamelan performance in Paris, was profoundly influenced by that music. In the same spirit as that comment by the French musician, to us, meaning to Japanese musicians, Western music is still a new resource.
1: <laughs> that's uh, that's yeah. <laughs> I recognize him there. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's very, fun. well, it's, it's all... Relative, obviously, because to Western musicians who hadn't heard gamelan music, of course, it must have sounded extremely new. Yeah. But um, so, what was, what was Takamitsu like on that trip?
1: He was uh, practically from that part of the world. So, there are things he knew which we didn't. But I remember one day uh, w- one of us had problems with his back. He began to have back pains. And he said, I'll give you a massage. And he started massaging him in the truck and it was so rough so hard that <laughs> I forget who, who it was. It was it was not Xenaki. Uh, it was somebody else. But <laughs> I was says, "Stop! You, can't. Uh, I can't bear it." You know. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm
0: trying to imagine it. But he was physically quite tiny. Yeah, he's so. <laughs> tiny.
1: He was very tiny. Yes, it was quite a revelation. Uh. And and I uh, I experienced this again when I went to see him in Tokyo. We arrived extremely late because she The train, a fast train, had had some kind of a problem, and we arrived three hours late. And he was absolutely furious. He greeted us very, very badly. <laughs> but then, then we all started drinking, and, and uh, things got better. <laughs> the problem after drinking, we were wondering whether the person who had who was a painter. He says, "I can't drive anymore." Oh yes, Takemitsu, you can drive. Just sit on that bed. So he sits on the bed, and he takes off his shirt, and he begins massaging again. <laughs> and he drove us back to Tokyo. No problem.
0: <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was Takemitsu. <laughs> when you hear some of his music, it, it sounds strange, doesn't it?
0: Yes. What impression did his music make when it started getting performed in Europe? Uh, did you did you hear early performances of his music? Uh,
1: I, at first, it, uh, I was a little surprised because it seemed so uh, so delicate. There was so much going on, uh, which was so different here at that at that point. And then I began to like it very much. And I remember being very fascinated by a piece for trumpet, which is absolutely wonderful, which uh, Hardenberger plays. Uh, and at that time, uh, my, my son was studying trumpet with Hardenberger. Yeah.
0: There's a piece by Takamitsu that is almost like a, a, a tube, comme on dit en français, or a, a hit, which is Rain Spell. Oh, yes. And I have so many students who come to me and they want to understand that piece and they're really almost obsessed with it. Uh, it seems like he found something really quite new in, in that piece. How, are you, how would you describe it?
1: Uh, I couldn't because I, I, I never, I never took the trouble to look at those pieces uh, very, very deeply. Uh, I, I'm afraid to say so. I, I shouldn't say so uh, because I, I, I loved listening to them, and I, and I didn't really want, didn't, didn't really think that they, they could bring me anything. Sometimes I was a little surprised because it sounded so close to Debussy or Ravel, you know, uh, Debussy rather than Ravel. Yeah, he, he, I think he he knew that. Uh, he didn't care. Uh, in fact, he was proud of it. Yeah. No, no. We never discussed this. But uh, when I went to see him in Tokyo, at the end of the evening, he got to be very nice and he gave me many scores. Suddenly he began to take out records and scores. <laughs> and I left uh, burdened with Takemitsu music, which is great. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So, okay, so Presumably, you weren't writing music on the trip, but you got back home, and this resulted in the composition of B for Sonata, if I've understood correctly. That's right. Yeah.
1: No, I didn't write any music. I took a lot of notes. I felt very, very strongly that I had to remember all this, and I had to, I had to look it up later when I came back and, and find out. In fact, I started reading books about that music when I came back, and it, it suddenly made sense. And and I tried to I tried to listen in this kind of tuning. I, I tried to get accustomed to this tuning, and that's why it got so so difficult when I came back.
0: How do they tune their instruments? Do, do they have their own alternative? They have, tuning they have system?
1: several. They have two different kind of scales. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't describe them today. It has to do with the mood, and uh, it has to do uh, with uh, something like major and minor. Uh, it has the same implication. Very com- comparable.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So I
1: could look it up. I could look up on my notes and yeah. <laughs> answer properly. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so stupid. No,
0: no. Well I don't I don't know a great deal about Balinese music. I've heard it many times and I'm I'm quite fascinated by it, but I have no idea technically how they do it. And the whole way that they approach performance is completely mysterious to me too, because it's extremely precise. Yes. But there doesn't seem to be a conductor, or there's a kind no. of no. There's no conductor, but there there might be a leader. But I don't I don't know how they coordinate each other.
1: That that was a problem. I remember uh, I was amazed uh, at, at the co- the coordination. I I think they they practice together so much that they 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 begin to feel each other uh, uh, without a conductor. You know, uh, it, it's 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 uh, an experience I, I went through later, uh, which made me understand that that maybe. Just playing together a lot does help you not need a conductor. I, I remember a conductor in America showing us what happened when he stopped conducting. And the orchestra went up when right to the end of the, of the movement, no problem. He had stopped conducting.
0: Yeah. I remember I heard a concert at the Sade Playel years ago. It was Daniele Gatti uh, performing one of the Schubert symphonies. I think it was number five. And I noticed that he would give the downbeat at the start of the symphony and then his hands would just be at his sides. He wasn't moving. And I thought, well, that's interesting. He's not really conducting very much. And then every now and then he would give a cue or he would, he would give an indication to the orchestra. But a lot of the time he, was, he seemed to be doing very little. And uh, I asked my friend who was sitting next to me at the concert, why isn't he conducting? He said, well, there's no need to, he doesn't need to give every single beat. The orchestra knows how to do that.
1: There we go. Salty was like that. I remember saying to myself, I, "I couldn't follow him uh, to save my life. He would just uh, stop and, and suddenly give it. But he knew exactly when, uh, hmm. when it was necessary. Uh. So that's probably the the secret uh, of these people. They, 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 uh, they' are a small community, uh, re- relatively small. It's not big cities. Bali has, uh, Jakarta is, the, is, is the, the biggest city, but other places are more size of villages. Everybody knows each other, and and they, they do things together hmm. a lot. So they probably feel the, the, the way that everybody is going to react. That's the only way I can explain hmm. uh, that they don't have a conductor. They never have a conductor.
0: I wonder if there are similar things in other parts of Indonesia, because Bali is, a, is a, quite a small island. If you go to other parts of Indonesia or other places in that part of the world, do you find anything similar to that, or is it really confined to that one island?
1: I'm sure if you, if you go to Vietnam, for instance, you, you probably hear music that, that, uh, uh, that might remind you dimly, uh, but wouldn't have the same rules, because there are rules, and they, they, they can teach you the rules. I saw a class, they were not really beginners, but they were, they were, they were learning about the modes and about the rhythms. What I reproduced, but not knowingly, uh, just instinctively, in my BIFA Sonata is is the way the gongs mark the phrases. And that is something which is so impressive. It's so beautiful, too. The sound of it is so wonderful. I mean, the the, the gongs in that... I remember visiting a place where they were building gongs. I remember Yanis being very impressive because there was a low E-flat a, a gong oh. he said listen to that he
0: said. <laughs> <laughs> well there seems to have been a kind of enthusiasm engouement you'd say in French uh, in the 1970s for this sort of music for for music, for Eastern music I'm thinking of things like Inori of Stockhausen and, and then of course also uh, certainly the, the Quebecois composer Claude Vivier was also very fascinated by this and was that something that was that you were aware of at the time, that this was sort of in the, in the, in the air of the time, so to speak.
1: Well, it, it, it was general. You're absolutely right. And, and it had to do also with the, the fact that there were ethnomusicologists. Uh, I don't know what the, the term Ethno, it,
0: Ethnomusicologists. Musicologists.
1: There was a very, very remarkable man at the Musée de l'Homme in Paris. And I remember Boulez was very interested in music of, of other countries. We all started being interested in music of, of other countries as a way to enlarge our perspective. It was a time when we were wondering where where we were going. 12-tone music was not the only solution. There were other solutions. uh, that uh, I I remember uh, there was Ravi Shankar at the time. uh, He was a big hit, of course, uh, everywhere. Uh, I remember going with uh, with Jacques-Claude Llois to listen to to a whole evening of of Indian music. Hmm.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, already in Le Marteau Saint-Metre, there's a reference to this sort of music. Oh, yeah,
1: Occident. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this was very much in the air at the time. I mean, after the war, it, it was a way of sort of moving out of the horror of being everything that had happened in, the, in this continent. You
0: know, mm-hmm.
1: uh, I probably had to do with it also.
0: Yeah, Boulez has spoken about the importance of not being a musical tourist, but rather of taking these sorts of sources of inspiration and transforming them into something else, so that it yes. becomes almost unrecognizable in the piece. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, we we the the, the, the the being a musical tourist, uh, turning turning Indian, <laughs> was just a, something we, we wouldn't accept, of course. Yeah. But the, this was general. It, it was also in America, uh, and Canada. Uh, I, I found that everywhere.
0: Oh, and Colin McPhee also yeah, had, yeah. was Colin uh, McPhee. Yes, yeah.
1: of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this I read uh, on my way back uh, from from uh, Bali. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote a, a beautiful piano concerto. I wish I could remember that. I wish I could remember the title of it. Which uh,
1: sounds like valley
0: music. It does. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and that was all, if I'm not mistaken. I think that was in the early 1930s. So already at that point, there was an awareness of this music, and it was having yes. an influence yes. on on Western composers.
1: Yes, I remember reading this book very carefully because I thought I had to learn. And especially as I was preparing for a class, the martial class, you know, I I was I wasn't going to say just just anything, you know. Mm. Yeah.
0: So it's but it's an interesting point for me because your piece topeng it doesn't sound like Indonesian music. No. So. <laughs> but, I, I wouldn't know how to do that. But I, I think what it comes out of more is this approach to form where you can pass yes. through all of these different scenes, these different character types that uh, that alternate over the course of the piece.
1: Yes. So it, it was so enriching. I remember uh, being very grateful for this experience uh, to, to have opened my mind, you know. I, I would never have found that out to, alone. And especially in, in my family, we were very, very far from that part of the world. My father had never been to Greece, for instance. It was a strange. I mean, he was such an open-minded uh, person, but never, Greece, he didn't know.
0: So one thing that you've said that uh, you've said it a few times that I find remarkable is that at first you weren't very happy with the piece or at least you weren't quite sure what you'd done and you're very open about um, your opinions about your own works so but it's it's remarkable because you don't often find a composer who is openly self-critical in that way.
1: (laughs) Well uh, some pieces I really like and some pieces I like after after I've heard them many times and I like them when other people like them. I say, that, oh, it must have something <laughs> which I can't see, you know. Mm. <laughs> and as I told you the story of, of my not recognizing my own music, when it has been written 60 years ago, you have to be that, as old as I am to understand what the problem is. Yeah, Because really, uh, one moves quite a bit throughout all these years. And in fact, uh, sometimes I, it's a good surprise. I say, I wrote that? Well, I was pretty good at the time. <laughs> mm. So sometimes I have that reaction. Not, mm. not very often, but sometimes.
0: Well, I think another thing that I find really remarkable that I'd like to talk about just for a little bit is I work with a lot of composition students. And one thing that they find very difficult, very challenging, I think is, it sounds banal, but learning how to work, learning how to have a routine, and learning how to become disciplined about being a composer. And one of the things I know that you do is you work every morning, systematically.
1: I feel ha- unhappy when I can't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And and in fact, uh, the, when you told me you were coming tomorrow morning, I felt unhappy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're worried that your your routine would be interrupted. <laughs> That's right. No, I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> but you must have a very very strong sense of discipline, or, or maybe it's not discipline. Maybe it's uh, like a uh, an internal obligation that you feel that you have to do it.
1: It's it's both. It is discipline because, uh, especially as a woman, as a mother, I've I've had to in store what I call office hours Mm. and office hours were sacred it was understood it wasn't always accepted but it was admitted and uh, it it was absolutely impossible uh, to to call me on my phone uh, uh, or to to have me do anything in the morning Uh, the morning I'm a morning woman I don't like night uh, I've never been able to work at night. I need the morning. I need, I need the, the waking up. And 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 uh, I've written a, a lot about morning. In fact, uh, a, lot, a lot of my titles deal with morning. Le, le son du petit jour, etc. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so so. Uh, it it's been throughout my life uh, i i i've had to follow this discipline and i do that in 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 a great many other fields also uh, especially as i get old mm. i mean if i don't follow that discipline i might as well stop
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it's very important
0: it is very important and and very, what...
1: very important especially as you, because uh, part of uh, getting old is is just to to forget such, such things which I just did, of course. I, I noticed I forget some names, but I'm not, I'm not too bad about that. Yeah. I still remember the figures very well, and, and uh, I, I, whenever I forget something, I, uh, I, I try to remember it all day, and sometimes it comes back uh, at night. Hmm. Never, you never know why. Well, so uh, it, it keeps me alive. Uh,